You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 274. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. My next interview I recorded back in New Hampshire. That is a a good old New Hampshire interview. I like being reminded of New Hampshire, and I had such a great time listening to it. Sometimes you learn more from the re-listen than you do as the actual interviewer. Uh, I'm always surprised by how many of you out there like our coverage of scientific topics, of mathematical topics. I get usually the most feedback from those. aside from some of the some of the more political ones. And today's episode really is the real deal TM, the real deal trademark. This is you're gonna get you're gonna get real stuff today. Uh, my update is that now I have my workplace set in Stanford. So I look forward to doing some video interviews again soon. And I spoke to Aaron last night, excited to have him back on the show uh, uh, in, in maybe next week or the week after. I know it was the Boston Marathon today, so there must have been a lot of activity in his area. Anyway, uh, let's learn about quantum physics and quantum computing. Uh, My next guest is the perfect person to do just that. He has a PhD in physics and actually works in quantum computing. Ian McCormick, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Max. It is good to be here. Usually I seek out local minima, but uh, it's a nice nice change of pace. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things that I really um, was annoyed with uh, in machine learning, because they're always, you know, you can easily set up the problems to find a local maximum. Because I always think of you know, like you're maximizing probability, you're maximizing rewards. But then they always flip the problem around on you, and it's like, oh, well, we're minimizing loss. It's almost like a double negative. I, I don't know. know if that I, come to think of it that that, that bothers me. I, it could I, just I, be I caveman physics intuition of wanting the ball to roll to the bottom of the hill or something. Maybe, but, but isn't that? That's not a high energy state or low energy state. It's uh, consu- well, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Can always change the okay. sign if it suits you. Says better. the says the physicist. <laughs> okay, I, I get it. I get it. Okay, all right. So we're here to talk about quantum computing today, and and also, you know, I, I want to hear a little bit about your background first of all, because sure. this is the first time we've talked about quantum computing on the on the program with any depth. So how does one fall into quantum computing? You know, it's not exactly something every company is doing right now. Uh, but a lot of people have been talking about it. People have been asking me about quantum computing for many years. Uh, so you studied physics, is that correct? Yeah, um, I did my undergrad and PhD in physics. Um, I didn't specifically study quantum computing. And um, I should say that I, I studied theoretical condensed matter physics. So I'm a theory guy, a lot of pencil and paper and calculations and computer simulations. Um, I wasn't working in a lab on hardware. Um, but I, although I did a PhD, I never really had any intention of going into academia and sort of, sort of partway, um, I'd say towards the, towards the end of my PhD, um, I, I had been aware of quantum computing as a concept. I I had learned a couple of the basic algorithms, um, along the way, but I noticed that it had started to become an, um, actually a trend in industry and there were, there, there were companies, um, building quantum computers and um, uh, trying to actually use them for practical purposes. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, given that I don't really want to go down the academic path, this seems like a, a pretty good uh, 
possible option after graduate school. Yeah. Well, can I ask what what area of physics were you studying before that? Yeah. uh, So, yeah, I studied uh, theoretical condensed matter physics, which can mean a lot of things. Um, I was kind of... um, there, there's a kind of community of physicists that you that's sort of loosely called it from qubit, which is kind of at the intersection of um, quantum condensed matter physics. That is um, studying the physics of um, many-body quantum mechanical systems, um, quantum information theory, which um, studies things like um, uh, entanglement entropy uh, and things like that in, in physical systems and uh, formal high-energy high physics where sort of the string theorists come from. So I uh, the things I did my PhD were um, pretty varied, uh, ranged from working, in th- working a bit on um, ADS-CFT, which is kind of more in the high-energy physics realm, to um, numerical simulations of uh, sort of uh, just... Um, lattice like condensed matter physics systems yeah this is some of this is getting kind of beyond my knowledge of even where the fields are but let's um let's talk about let's start with quantum mechanics a little bit you know i i took one class at yale on physics which was the hardest i i I didn't mean to take the hardest physics class for for uh for like you know there were different levels but yeah yeah you know it was the only one that fit into my schedule and it was like um it was like, you know, you had to take, um, uh, you already had to be really tight with linear algebra and multidimensional manifolds, which I was like, oh, so just kind of wrapping my head around. Was it like, like the advanced, like, uh, like first year physics course or something? Yeah. 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 And it was like, that all was the also ovens. the hardest physics course for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like one day they came in and, and he, uh, he he, uh, he 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 derived the theory of relativity from scratch, basically. Yeah. If I remember correctly, this is all twenty years ago. So, yeah. but um, quantum mechanics was was a part of it, and I remember thinking, okay, like now we're talking about probability clouds or something, mm-hmm. and maybe this is one of the early uh, earliest uh, experience. Come to think of it, for me, when I was thinking about information as probability clouds, mm-hmm. um, of course, quantum quantum mechanics is a really unique way of, of representing that. And come to think of it. I actually did ask uh, uh, a previous guest on the show. I'm going to write this down. A, a mathematician, Ty Danae Bradley, about I think I think it was her. When I, I I think at some point the conversation weaved into like, hey, like, is there any way to represent probability as like um, you know these imaginary numbers like mm-hmm. we and, and have it be something useful that we can like <laughs> use to like you know. Uh, uh, model something in the in yeah. well, I mean, it does model something in the real world, obviously quantum mechanics. But I'm talking like, you know, like if I'm trying to model like marketing data or mm-hmm. something. Oh, yeah. I don't know. But uh, uh, anyway, I'm I'm rambling a little bit on that. But uh, maybe maybe we can start because this is this is tough stuff for a lot of people. Maybe we can start by explaining how quantum mechanics is different from regular old mechanics and where computing fits in. Sure. Uh, and and let's try to keep it. You know, let's. Let's try to we we can let's try to keep most people and then we can push it afterwards. Sure, I'll start with a uh, a mildly technical sort of explanation. Okay, but but then I will uh, then I'll, then I'll give a, a broader stroke because I think for for those yeah so the mildly technical one is just for those that have at least a vague memory of linear algebra. Okay, um, if you know linear algebra, then quantum mechanics is not so scary. Um, so essentially. Um, 
let's see, w- w- a, a quantum mechanical system mathematically um, consists of a state, often called a wave function, in, um, that's represented in a vector space. And importantly, that state is normalized, um, so it maintains a, a, link, a unit length. Um, the state has a particular structure. It's a Hilbert space, which means it has a particular inner product. So um, normalized meaning mm-hmm. like the space in some sense adds up to one? or So, th- so that one. the length of this vector is always one. Okay. So, and, okay. So, so it's or the length right. squared, rather, which, which is to, and the reason, and the reason that is, <laughs> it's like it, well, one squared is one, right? So it has well, to be. It's so that it has to, um, so that it maintains its interpretation, so that the wave function squared or magnitude squared maintains the interpretation of a, a probability distribution. Right. Right. Okay. So, so this vector, um, and if you know. You can imagine a vector in, say, in, you know, X, Y, Z Cartesian coordinates. Okay. These are Just our basis vectors. Um, say we have some some vector in this space. It's a linear combination of the X, Y, and Z basis vectors. And um, if we normalize it, um, as in quantum mechanics, uh, each component of that vector um, represents essentially the... Um, the probability, um, or the extent to which that that quantum mechanical state occupies each one of those basis states. So let me rewind a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I'll rewind a little bit there. Um, so, okay, I've mentioned we have these states. I might have gotten a little too little technical there. Um, and an important point about yeah, an important feature of quantum mechanics, and maybe the basic feature that m- makes it. Um, so unintuitive to uh, sort of human scale reasoning is that uh, fundamentally uh, things are um, probabilistic and that um, when a quantum mechanical system is not being observed, when it's just evolving freely, it can be in a superposition of multiple different states. So that could be probably a familiar example from you know, high school chemistry um, say in, in an atom, um, the electrons in the cloud can be in a in a superposition. That is to say, like a probability distribution over several of the different electron orbitals. Um, and that probability distribution, or rather, um, that probability distribution corresponds to the square magnitude of the uh, quantum mechanical wave function, which is the ultimate the, the state that defines the system so it, it, it the way i i think about it like tell me if i'm all off base is like in our space in the universe like almost you could almost say like location doesn't exist or at least like points in in space don't exist but of course that <laughs> that that sort of screws with our notions of like newtonian physics or, or you know so it's 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 um but but yeah i, I guess the whole like marbles on a board thing doesn't work when you actually look at the marbles. So when you get to the scale of marbles, um, th- th- As a this, tiny part. Th- yeah, the, yeah, the, this no, this no longer exactly applies. I, I can sort of explain why later, but that would be sort of a digression. But yeah. the point is, um, whether it's you know, elect- it's, if you say have the simplest molecule, say hydrogen, where you have one electron. It can be in a superposition of, of, of these orbitals until you observe the electron. Um, um, and depending on what you measure, 
suppose I measure the energy of this electron, it will then subsequently collapse. And uh, don't ask me how, because that's a longer digression. The state will collapse into one of the um, definite energy state orbitals. So previously it occupied a, um, a superposition of these orbitals with different energies until I try to measure or observe the energy at which point it collapses into a definite state of the orbitals. Right. Um, so, yeah, so mm-hmm. what does that have to do with computing? And I, I find it really um, interesting that we could even compute with, with these kinds of... Um, w- w- with these kinds of systems? Like, how does that even sure. work? Um, can I add a little bit of a technical aside that sure. will just be useful for, for those with... It's not, not strictly necessary, but it'll okay. be useful to for, to keep in the back of your mind for later. Okay. So the other important thing is that... Um, so a quantum mechanical system, and we'll go to an even simpler system, and, and this is what we'll use for most of the explanations. The Like, the simplest quantum mechanical systems are spins. Um like specifically spin one-half um, objects, um, which you can think of as, well, physically you can think of as little magnets, but fundamentally the, it's a system that can occupy two states, up or down. Um, and um, the wave function of a spin um, could be some um, combination of these two, so that when I measure it, I have, say, 60% probability of uh um, uh, landing on an upstate, 40% probability of landing on a downstate, etc. And of course, th- again, this wave function is complex, uh, complex valued, so we take the square magnitude of it to get a probability distribution. Right. Complex not as in complicated, but as in... Complex, complex numbers, number. yeah. Um, so the, the digression I wanted to mention is that the... So, you know... I said that, you know, at the quantum mechanical scale, things are fundamentally probabilistic. And that is true when you're doing measurements. You um, you, you can't predict perfectly um, what the outcome of a measurement will be. Um, however, the evolution of a closed quantum mechanical system is deterministic. Um, and it's, it's uh, you, you've probably heard of Schro- so Schrodinger's equation. It's deterministic before you've observed, is what you're saying. Correct, so, yeah. Okay. So. so the wave function evolves according to Schrodinger's equation, okay. uh, which is to say, so, so the system, essentially its energy um, and the interactions between the different degrees of freedom um, are encoded in what's called a Hamiltonian. And if you essentially um, solve Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's equation, which is a bit like, it looks a bit like the heat equation. It's a sort of wave equation, but with complex numbers in it. Um, you find that the, um, the, if you have some initial state and you evolve it forward in time with a solution to Schrodinger's equation, um, that the state maintains its normalization um, to... Uh, put it in slightly more technical terms, um, the, the time evolution operators for closed quantum systems are unitary operators. Um, so for discrete systems, that would be unitary matrices. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, I'll leave right. it at that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're, uh, uh, you're losing us, uh, in, 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 some of us over here, but I think, um, I think the the bottom line that I got out of it, so I'm just going to try to summarize, is that, um, okay, we have these wave functions instead of 
instead of like points or something, mm-hmm. we have these wave functions to represent particles, objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they could be they could be superpositions of two things, up up and down. They could be something more complicated than that. Um, and if you have some particles, like a bunch of wave functions that overlap, and you don't mess with it, you let it go. It's deterministic. Like if if the wave function is this at time zero, then a minute later it'll definitely look like that. That's deterministic Correct. in terms of where the in terms of where the probability juice goes. Yep. So it's like only when you observe somewhere in between that, then then does it have this like kind of spooky, uh, you know, hey, uh, wave function collapse, which it's my understanding that like physicists are not like uh, in agreement on how to interpret that uh, just yet. Am I I wrong about that? Um, Or am I right about that? I should probably pause. (laughs) I don't think it's, I, I don't think that's a huge area of contention um as far as doing calculations you don't really need to think about that right right um in terms of like debating about whether there are alternate universes or sure and 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 i don't you you don't necessarily even you don't even need to go into the philosophical realm to get interesting answers about what happens during wave function collapse okay um but i'll leave that there okay so so getting back to okay how the hell does all this relate to information and computing? Um, so we'll go back to spins, our simple two-state systems. And um, so we're treating these as an abstraction. You know, these are this is just an abstract two-state system, the same way we think of bits as just abstract two-state systems. Um, I can I can talk later about how you can um, encode them in a physical uh, system. But, okay, so these... Spins can occupy um, two possible states, up or down, or zero and one, if you prefer. And um, so at to describe an arbitrary state of a spin, um, you need, uh, roughly speaking, um, two numbers, basically. Um, the, well, yeah, the, 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 the probability that it's pointing up and the probability that it's pointing down. Really, okay. it, it's 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 one real number and one imaginary number because okay. um, we don't have to get into the yeah. math of it. So, but roughly but, speaking, to describe the state of a single spin, you need two real numbers. Okay, two, okay. two floating point numbers. No, no I have a question, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I I don't want to get you off track here. Is this something that like um, as the computer operator is, mm-hmm. is this something that we know beforehand? Like, okay, we can set it up. So that this um, uh, this particle is is sixty forty, and then we're going to see how the system evolves. Sure, yeah. For okay. for a single spin, yeah, I could I could write that down on that piece of paper. Okay. Yeah. Um. But. Um, and can you actually create it in the physical? In the physical, the physical world, physical? Uh, yes, and we can okay. get into that. Oh wow. Okay. Um. Uh. So right. Okay. So that's one spin. Um. That's fine. It's a two, it's a two dimensional. Vector space, okay. two-dimensional complex value vector space. And then I'm allowed space. to observe it. And then sometimes yeah, you, you're, about, you're allowed to observe it, and it'll collapse to one of okay. one of those Great. two states. So That could be a um, really expensive random number generator. Uh, in fact, that is one of the early, earliest sort of uh, possible applications. Um, <laughs> and that is what some quantum computers currently are. Hmm. Um, not to throw shade, but um, so... so w- in quantum information theoretic terms, what I just described, we'll call a qubit. So as opposed to a traditional computing bit um, that is in a deterministic state 
of zero or one, um, where information is stored in essentially strings of bits. um, Qubits um, um, can be in superpositions of zero and one. And uh, what happens when I add a second qubit? Um, The the dimension of the, the possible state space um, goes from two to four. I multiply the dimensions of the of the two uh, state spaces of the two qubits. So, okay, right, that makes sense. I mean, same with regular bits, right? Then you have Correct. four four different uh, combinations. Yeah, and so if I have n bits, I have a two to the n dimensional, roughly speaking, um, yeah. space. And um, but now it's a so now it's a box that you're in the interior of a box instead of you're yeah, well, like in a hypercube, right? Uh, well, you're really on the, on a hypersphere because it's a normalized vector. But oh yeah. Okay. The, so yeah, so the hard so the difficult part comes. So so this is also true for bits, uh, as you correctly. So if I have n bits, there are two to the n possible configurations of the bits. But in classical computing, the bits are only ever in a particular deterministic state, right? Right. With a qubit. If I have if I have n qubits, I need a, roughly speaking two to the n floating point numbers to describe the wave function that they're currently occupying to describe the okay. full quantum mechanical dynamics of it. And in order to oh, wait, you need need two to the n numbers, not just n number. Like correct because because okay because I was thinking hey each one has a probability associated with it between zero and one. Okay, fine, we do something. With quant, we make a quantum, we make it a complex number, fine, but that's not mm-hmm. much more complicated. But what I'm hearing is no, like every subset of them needs some kind of a number. So yeah, to uh, add a little technical jargon, if the these the, you you the space the the space in which uh, multiple qubits live is the tensor product space of the individual qubits, and basically just what that means is each qubit is a two-dimensional system. Every time I add another one, I multiply the size of um, the dimension of the, the, the state space by two. Wait, wait, wait. So, okay, Here, here's the way I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. When you add a bit in, in traditional computing, you are adding a dimension because... You're you're kind of adding a dimension to the box, or let's say you add a new floating point. Number. Well, you're still multi- you're, adding- you're still multiplying the dimension when you add a traditional bit, um, but you don't have to keep track of superpositions of over all possible bits. So right, so, right. So so it sounds like you're so you're think- actually it's it's increasing the the number of possibilities increasing by like an order of magnitude or, or like exponentially mm-hmm. as compared to. Uh, traditional computing. So, yeah. yeah. No, because you are adding in traditional computing because, like, if I have 10 numbers, that's 10 dimensions. I add an 11th number, that's an 11th dimension. But it, it sounds like in, in quantum, no, it's like 2 to the 11, and, and so things are going crazy. Yeah, so you're... you're, you're and, when, and I know, when, I'm, I'm, I know I'm giving my, like, I'm oversimplifying, and I, I, we don't have time to, like, you don't have time to explain to me the whole thing, but that's that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, so... Um, um, so if you if you think you can think about it in terms of so before you know a single qubit is a zero or a one 
say we have two qubits. Okay, so the it can occupy four possible states now: zero, zero, right. one, one, sure, one, zero, zero, one. Sure, sure. And then so we need four numbers to describe that. Yeah. We we put another qubit in the system. Now we have an eight dimensional space. Okay. And you can you can list out all of the you know zero 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 one 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 etc. Um, now think about an, uh, a, a, um, a binary string of length n, and now think about um, a a con an, a and each one of those we associate with a dimension in a vector space. So there are two to the n dimensions. And our vector, our state, the state of our qubit lives somewhere in this space as a continuous um, linear combination of all of these binary bit strings of, right. of n bits. So it's, it's, put it another way, they're mm -hmm. not independent probabilities. Correct. Yeah. And we can talk about entanglement, but um, the, yeah, the, the fact that you can... This is ultimately the the what entanglement boils down to as well. I can I can demystify yeah. that as well. So okay, well, so the point is, if you want to um, simulate a system of n qubits, you need two to the n. You need to store and manipulate two to the n floating point numbers. So um, that gets that very quickly uh, chews up um, your memory and like computing power. So 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 like okay. 64 bits, I can store 64 bits easily, but 64 mm -hmm. qubits, that's, I don't know if we're getting to the realm where that's impossible to... Uh, so, but. so the world record for exactly simulating without approximations, right. <clears throat> um, a system of qubits, um, I think is something like 40 mm. qubits. Right. Um, and maybe that has changed, okay. but, but but that that you know required a huge computing cluster. On this laptop yeah. here, if I wanted to exact... Um, say exactly solve Schrodinger's equation uh, for some system of interacting qubits. Um, I could um, I could do it pretty quickly um, with like twelve qubits. When I get to fourteen or sixteen, it's going to get really slow. Wow. Um, and so at that point, um, and that's still you know fourteen or sixteen qubits is nothing, right? You know, a, a, you know, a couple grams of uh, metal has ten to the 23 10 to the 24 atoms in it, each of which yeah. contain you know many many things uh m yeah m many many things that are uh larger than qubits in their in their dimension yeah um go ahead so well no i, I was gonna say this is all really interesting if you have anything to add on that but like i, I wanted to step back from so that's like okay th that's how the quantum computer works on the most basic level mm -hmm. but computers okay Traditional computers, I don't know what you call them, like uh, classical, classical, yeah. yeah, classical computers work on bits. But then, mm -hmm. then the let's let's build up to like, okay, we're kind of familiar with what classical computers can do. Sure. What does this mean? What can quantum computers do? Uh, I mean, I I, I, I was I always go, I have, I of course have to bring up the lecture that I went to on it one sure. time in two thousand two. So that's uh, now twenty one years ago. But <laughs> so yeah. I, I think I do need to give a bit more. So yes. the the reason it's potentially promising is because you you have this na naturally occurring immense information storage and manipulation um, capability in just uh, in, in inherent to quantum mechanics. Um, because again, like you yeah. can't you can't simulate um, 
uh, 100 or uh, let alone 1,000 qubits exactly. Um, it's impossible, but um, 100 or 1,000 um, physical representations of qubits maybe, maybe you could store and manipulate. And if you can manipulate them in a controlled way, which just is to say to perform gates on them, um, the way we do with classical computing gates, you know, NAND and uh, XOR operators and whatnot, the, the quantum, the quantum equi- mechanical equivalents of those, then maybe we can make algorithms, right? And um, and we can, uh, yeah, we can manipulate the states of these qubits in a controlled way, um, such that um, we, when we ultimately take a measurement at the end, because again, at the end of the day, you, if you want to know anything about your quantum mechanical system, you have to measure something. Right. So it, it contains lots of information when it's being simulated, but it's not like you can actually use it to store all that information. Well, uh, well and, when it's being and, simulated or yeah. when it's just existing, but when yeah. you want to <clears throat> take a look at it, you have to, um, depending on how much information you, have, you want to extract... Um, yeah, you have to measure something at the end of the day, right? Um, and you can't you you can't at any point uh, just me, um, get get the full state of the qubits for any sufficiently right. large system. So it's not so, so. The first thing that was in my mind wouldn't work. Where I'm like, okay, let's say I want to condense like all of YouTube, all the videos mm-hmm. on YouTube, uh, and then like just just place them in some qubit yeah. configuration. Configuration. You can't get all the videos back because you have to collapse the wave function. Uh, but maybe it, maybe right. there are applications where you can store lots of. So yeah, uh, I mean, in principle, you could um, store all of the, the the videos on YouTube in a, a large number of qubits. Um, yeah, getting them back um, uh, would be would be pretty difficult. That would not be an, an ideal setting for that. Hmm. So quantum algorithms, you know, what they boil down to um, is uh, you you have a number of qubits. You apply a series of gates, which take the form of unitary matrices or operators that manipulate single qubits or act on multiple qubits at a time to entangle them or swap them or disentangle them, uh, so as to produce a wave function on these qubits, a state that, when measured um, in a particular way, Perhaps many, many uh, uh, through many repetitions, um, will give the answer to some um, <laughs> to to to, to uh, some uh, some question or so, some, some calculation. Yeah. So you're sampling from probability distribution all on the hardware, and mm-hmm. I think, and then and you could do it many times. So, you, so you, okay, so you could build a pretty decent sampler, I guess. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, the re so. I'll give an example of one of the sort of the first algorithms a person learns maybe when they're reading a a, a quantum mechanics textbook. And if you want a recommendation, if anyone is curious, the sort of the Bible is uh, Nielsen and Schwang. Um, Forget the exact title. It's called Quantum Information or something. Um, But that's uh, a good place to get started if you're curious. Um, So Grover's algorithm is a search algorithm. Um, where um, you, uh, let's see, so you take advantage of the fact that um, you are, you, you can have a, a, um, a superposition of potentially all of the bit states at any given time 
and you repeatedly apply a particular operator that amplifies the probability of finding the um, the thing that you're searching for. Hmm. Um, that, okay. that, that was a very, very broad overview of, of Grover's algorithm, um, m- mostly because I, I forget the details of it. No, okay, but, um, I, but I think I got a con- concept here. You have some probability distribution you're pulling from. You're sort of applying something to it where mm-hmm. you are, you're constantly increasing the probability of the thing you want then I guess at some point you try to get it and maybe you got it, maybe not. But if you do it a bunch of times, it kind of works. Right. So, okay. So yeah, what, what, what can this be used for? These, these seem, you know, you know, normal, normal, the classical computing algorithms, you know, took geniuses in many cases to, to come up with. So like these seem like a lot harder to invent. Um, because you're not just like manipulate. It's not just like a you know a Turing machine where you have a, a nice definite state and you're doing definite operations and you get a definite answer. At least I could wrap my head around how the machine works. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean I, I, they literally tell you about a Turing machine as like something on a ticker tape. Yeah, you know, so it's it's like very intuitive. Yeah, here we have to do something where we're sort of manipulating a probability distribution to sort of push it in the direction such that when we measure it, we get. Um, something that's more often in the outcome that we want. Yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to get into like all the algorithms here because that's going to be too much uh, for for, yeah. for our audio audience. But like, you know, when I was in a lecture, they were like, "We've done all this research mm-hmm. and we finally figured out how to factorize fifteen into mm-hmm. three and five. I'm sure you're familiar with that example. Mm-hmm. So, have they done better in the last twenty years? Um, yeah, so they're probably, so that's an example of, um, Shor's algorithm. So, okay. Yeah. Before I talk about algorithms, and again, I won't go into like, uh, you know, gritty details of the algorithms, yeah. but basically it's it, at, at this point in time, it's important to divide quantum computing algorithms into two basic categories. One are NISC algorithms, N-I-S-Q. So, um, noisy intermediate scale, um, intermediate scale quantum computers. So basically those are (laughs) the quantum computers we have now. They are noisy. That is the qubits do not maintain perfect fidelity. Um, And ultimately this is, this is the biggest challenge in building a quantum computer that Mm. is practical is reducing the amount of noise. But um, with the existing quantum computers, uh, which range from, you know, a handful to, dozens to, well, in some cases, hundreds of qubits, but whether those are all that useful is a question. Um, uh, people are have nonetheless, including myself, have spent time thinking about, okay, how might we make use of these um, noisy qubits um, that are imperfect, but are still um, pretty good? They, they still have some, some fidelity. So yeah, so maybe... Can you think of some like applications that we can wrap our head around? That, yes, it's that kind of like coming. Maybe maybe I could I could divide them into what's coming near term and what's coming long term. So a good example of a a, a type of NISC algorithm. Um, so there are a lot of basically variational NISC algorithms. Some of them are sort of machine learning oriented. There are quantum neural networks. Another um, maybe easier one to wrap your head around is. Um, called the variational quantum eigensolver. So basically I have the, so I have say the Hamiltonian for some quantum system, which is like the the energy function for it. 
and um, I want to find its uh, ground state, its lowest energy state, and its the lowest energy value. Okay, so um, so much like in machine learning, where you have a loss function, um, and you have some parameters that you minimize to uh, the, some parameters that you that you uh, adjust to uh, say minimize your loss function. Here, our loss function is uh, so. We, we create a circuit that contains variable parameters in it on some qubits. Um, and then at the end of it, we measure the energy, the, the, expected, the, the expectation value of the energy over this probability distribution. And, um, we, th and this is what's called a, a hybrid algorithm because we measure this energy at a particular parameter value, and then we use a classical computer to compute um, the gradient of these parameters, and we do gradient descent or something like that to minimize the energy to get an approximate representation of the ground state of this Hamiltonian. It's called variational um, quantum eigensolver. So this is, so people are just getting used to AI, now they're going to have to think about quantum AI. Uh, I think it's, it's just going to make training some of these systems uh, much more efficient or can you do um, more, much more broader than what you're doing now so uh this w the 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 next bit will be sort of editorial uh no i don't think i don't think vqe um <laughs> or most of these sort of <clears throat> we call the hybrid variational algorithms Hi yeah hybrid because you still need the classical computer to like compute gradients and there's this feedback loop between the quantum and classical um if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have been more optimistic about the potential for, say, industrial applications. I'm less optimistic about that now. And so um, before I go into that, I, sh I should say that the other broad class of algorithms are what are called fault-tolerant algorithms, which are algorithms that require quantum error correction. Um, which includes um, Shor's algorithm, which you alluded to earlier, which factorizes uh, numbers in, in, into, in, into primes. So, um, right. So, yeah, as I mentioned, the, the biggest challenge to building quantum computers is just the presence of noise. We're dealing with um, very small, delicate uh, physical systems. Um, there are a bunch of different physical systems that can be used as quantum computers. And uh, they're very sensitive to environmental noise, to thermal fluctuations to, I don't know, errant photons um, to uh, weird uh, sort of nonlinear behavior, uh, you know, uh, uh, couplings between distant qubits you didn't anticipate, all of the above and more. Um, and so suppressing noise in these systems is very difficult. And um, so there's always going to be some noise associated with these systems. And in order to get qubits that maintain perfect fidelity, um, you actually don't need a, you don't need a, a perfectly noiseless uh, physical qubit. So, um, so d uh, without digressing too much, um, a common example, a, a, a common qubit architecture is, a tra is what's called a trapped ion. It's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's an atom, a charged atom, an ion, where the qubit is the two lowest energy states of the atom. Um, and you basically shoot a laser at it to move between those two states, roughly speaking. Okay, um, 
so that that's we'll call that a physical qubit. It's always going to have some level, some some noise level. Um, just for an example, like a uh, you know single qubit gates. So uh, an operation on a single one of these qubits. Um, you know these these you know in ideal settings can have say ninety nine point nine nine percent fidelity. Um, a two qubit gate. Um, in, in trapped ions might have 99.8% fidelity in a very idealized experiment. When you're running a lot of them together and you have to run hundreds or thousands of gates, the errors accumulate very quickly ah, and you yeah. lose fidelity. But That problem. Yeah, and this is why... So you really need like 99.999. Yeah, so, but we don't need... We, we don't actually need perfect fidelity um, and in fact, cl- the classical computers we use don't have perfect fidelity. Sure. Occasionally, there are errant bit flips, but um, because of their physical size, their their uh, the physical size of transistors, they're 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 less susceptible to uh, to this noise than than yeah. qubits are. So and we have error correcting codes. Yeah, and we have we have error correcting codes, and analogously, they're quantum error correcting codes, which mm-hmm. uh, work a bit differently than classical error correcting codes. So. You know, the simplest sort of classical error correcting code is just a repetition code where I, I just copy. If I want to send you a one, I just send you, you know, 10 copies of it. And if a couple of them get corrupted, you just take the majority vote. Right. And you're likely to have received the correct message. Um, unfortunately, in quantum mechanics, you can't make copies of states the way you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's always, there's no free lunch. Um, you can't make copies of qubits while they're in their superposition in their superposition right um you could collapse it to a bit and make a copy of that right but then we're back to classical computing yeah right but there are algorithms um that um like in classical error correcting codes use multiple physical qubits to encode a single logical qubit and Mm. you can execute a series of operations on this collection of bits to diagnose and correct errors that um, that that occur. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, so, go ahead. Well, so okay. Once, if we solve this problem, are we going to be able to factorize large numbers in this like break encryption? So there are so um, there are lots of quantum error correction algorithms that exist. I'm not going to explain them here. It would be no, way, no, way no. too technical. Um, but, you know, roughly, it, it, like I said, it, you, you take a bunch, of, a, a bunch of physical qubits and you uh, get one, you know, one or some small number of logical qubits, the actual logical units that you're going to operate on out of them. And I th- the estimate that, uh, of what you need... To, so, so again, the algorithms are out there. There are lots of them. Lots of people have been working on this since the 90s, I, I think. Mm. Um, but y- if you want to have a perfectly um, error-corrected qubit, which you will need in order to, say, break RSA encryption or to do anything with these um, fault-tolerant algorithms, if you want to have a perfectly um, error-corrected qubit, you're going to, one, need... Um, You'll still need um, quite good uh, fidelity, so you you know you'll want your two qubit fidelities, um, or your you know the the error rate to be less than say one and you know one one thousandth of a percent per operation, mm. 
and you'll probably need thousands of physical qubits per single logical qubit. Okay. And so, okay, so that means if I want to, um, and I think, I, off the top of my head, I don't know, but I think if you want to break RSA encryption or RSA 2048, I'm sure it's been, there's, there's upgraded versions of it. Um, I think people estimate you need several thousand logical qubits, error-corrected qubits, each of which consists of possibly thousands of physical qubits. So millions of physical qubits with very low fidelity. So that's... I take it that's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Um, (laughs) Is there some kind of um, equivalent to Moore's law for quantum computing that could kind of uh, tell us that this might be possible at some point in the future? Um, Yeah, there is actually. Um, Yeah, so it's a little different than Moore's law. So, you know, Moore's law basically measures yeah moore's law measures essentially if i'm correct it's like the density of transistors i hope you're not going to tell me that it's a, a complex variable no, no, version no. of moore's law i mean okay. this is semi <laughs> but 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 i if i'm if i'm not mistaken moore's law is like the, like an exponential growth in basically like the density of transistors yeah. in, in 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 um classical computers right. right so the the analogous thing in quantum computing that's kind of just emerged as a benchmark is something called quantum volume um, which is like, you know, we're not concerned about density because we're already dealing with microscopic things. Um, so, but quantum volume sort of takes into account, it, it's a measure that I think IBM invented, but a lot of people have adopted it to kind of like benchmark and show off their systems. It's a measure that takes into account both the size of the system, the number of qubits, and the fidelity of the system, the 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 error rate, the low error rate. So the bigger you of a system you have, and the lower of an error rate you have, um, after executing, um, and uh, well, yeah. So let me, let me back that up a little bit. It's a measure basically of the width of the system, which is to say the number of qubits you have, the depth of the circuit you can run, the number of operations you can do in this qubit, um, and then uh, uh, corrected by the the uh, noise level that, that it experiences. So yeah, the so less noise kind of combining you combining all yeah, of that together. The more qubits, the less noise, and the more operations you can do, the higher the quantum volume um, you, you, you can you, uh, you can achieve. So yeah, okay. that, that is... Quantum volume. Yeah, so you can look it up. Uh, I don't know the formula of it off the top of my head. Uh, the current, well, if I say a number of the current record is not going to mean anything, um, but basic... But it's increasing. Yeah, and exponentially, like exponentially. Moore's Law. Yeah. Um, so that's, I suppose, uh, promising. And I would also say that like industry trends, um, so certainly for a while, even though I only started really paying attention to the quantum computing industry in like late 2019... Um, Back then, people were like all in on NISC, you know, near-term algorithms for doing, uh, you know, chemistry and doing pharmaceuticals and, you know, uh, know, solving all these complex problems in finance and stuff. Um, I think the enthusiasm for that has waned a bit. Um, Like I've seen so many like quantum algorithm or quantum software startups come and go. And I think... um, industry is more focused now on just the long-term goal of improving hardware fidelity and just aiming for um, ultimately error-corrected systems. 
Hmm. So, I mean, my sense is sometimes you have people on the internet saying, hey, um, quantum computers are going to break encryption like any day now. And it almost seems like, no. so it sounds like it's, it's, it's something that could come down the road, but it, it's, um, it's, we're not close. And I, I'd, I'd almost like to see, I'm sure someone's calculated it out with this quantum volume Moore's law. Someone's calculated it out like uh, when they'd be able to crack this. I almost want to look that up. Yeah, that's pro- that's probably not the measure you'd want. Um, right. You, you can look up, you can definitely look up the number of uh, logical qubits you'd need. So Shor's algorithm is the algorithm you'd use to crack RSA encryption. Um, but of course, there are other encryption algorithms out there yeah. that don't rely on factorizing numbers. Um, right. And there's a sub-research field of post-quantum encryption, which I imagine will probably move faster than the progress in hardware. Um, so, yeah. No, I wouldn't worry about quantum computers cracking encryption anytime okay. soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like there are applications in, like, you know, search and yep. optimization and machine learning and that kind of thing. Yep. So that's exciting. And I think even with not perfectly error-corrected quantum computers, but um, slightly less noisy, slightly larger quantum computers that we have than we have now, there still could be... Um, worthwhile applications for things um, like simulating molecules for drug discovery um, or materials yeah. development. Um, a lot of these are approximations anyway. So, Yeah, to- and, um, and, and they're inherently quantum calculations, so they're well-suited. Right. Things that are a little more distantly connected would be like optimization algorithms that may potentially, I think at this moment, don't have much promise, but if the the noisy quantum computers get a little larger and a little less noisy, potentially could be useful before full error correction. Yeah. Um, but that's just speculation. All right. Yeah. So I mean, we, we we've been talking for for a while, so I don't mm-hmm. want, I don't I don't want to keep you. But there's one more question that I had sure, yeah, uh, yeah. before we wrap up, wrap up, which is like, when you program a quantum computer, do you have to use a special language or a special framework, or are you just like sitting there using like Python or um, Java yeah. or something. I mean, so like just uh, typically, like, yeah, if you program a quantum computer, I mean, usually, so y- you could go and home and do this tonight. You could go <clears throat> to search Qiskit, Q-I-S-K-I-T, um, or Penny Lane. Qiskit is uh, IBM's um, quantum um, simulator and um, and uh, interface to their quantum computers. Yeah, it's basically a, a Python yeah, it is a Python package, and you essentially <laughs> you essentially program at quantum assembly level. Um, in fact, the language. Um, so that, you're almost you're, you're simulating a quantum computer on your own classical computer. Yeah, and then you, you you can also gain access even just as a regular civilian to some of their smaller computers and and run small things there. Really? Yeah. Um, but how, how does one do that? Like you go on their website and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Go to, go to, uh, IBM search, IBM quantum. Um, yeah, wow. you can buy credits, um, from them or Ion Q or, uh, I mean, I don't know why I, I would do that, but it's almost like if, if any listener out there yeah. <laughs> if have, finds the need, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. And, um, and they, they have very small ones available. I think you can use for free to a limited extent, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, so yeah, you're just programming in Python, but you're, you're using that to encode basically assembly level operations. So you're literally, um, encoding a sequence of gates like, well, C naught is the quantum equivalent of a, a not gate and then rotation operators on single qubits. Um, 
there aren't really yet high level quantum um computing programming languages right so you're not doing like higher order functions or anything no like that. no and in fact the, the the language i think the most common language for writing quantum algorithms is called chasm which is quantum assembly language and um kiss the Kiskit um uh python package is just kind of a wrapper for chasm more or less right see you're technically using python but it's almost like you're 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 encoding in python very low level yeah. assembly like um uh, instructions yeah gate level instructions and some people you know if you want to get the most performance you can can go deeper than that and can do things like um directly shape the you know the the the, the pulses of light that you're shooting at qubits um uh but that that's um yeah that's a level even lower than than wow. assembly language but yeah there there are no like um, you know, subroutines or, 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 or yeah, higher level like abstractions above uh, assembly language that have really gained any traction. I'm sure people have tried to, to make them, but they're not like too useful yet. Yeah, it almost all this stuff makes me think, and it it, it might be a long time or, or maybe never when like the average developer is actually using this stuff. Uh, but do you think there'll come a time when like you know the um, uh, you know, m many companies will be uh, wanting access to quantum computing or maybe using it without knowing it or... Uh, many companies, not. possibly. Um, I, you know... Well, certainly I, like governments and research. Yeah, and no, I, I can see them being very useful in like specific high value cases mm. and, and definitely in academic settings too. So that's another early area where, where some noise is tolerating is simply just simulating quantum systems for basic science. Yeah. Um, so like people already do that with quantum computers. Um, so, um, you know, I, I do find it hard to imagine having like a, you know, buying like a QPU the way you buy a GPU and just put, right, <laughs> installing right. it in your desktop. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose, I mean, if I were writing a science fiction uh, movie, yeah, uh, maybe uh, maybe I would have my character go to Best Buy and pick one of those up. It's not impossible to imagine that you know that well, being some, used for some Best Buy some specialized Best Buy, yeah. like optimization <laughs> subroutines. You know the way GPUs are used for very specialized um, sub uh, subroutines. Yeah, um, yeah, but certainly in the like next couple decades, I imagine. Um, uh, any practical use that could possibly come out of quantum computing will be sort of at the large industry or government level or, or academic level. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That, 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 this whole discussion has been great. It's, it's just, it's given us a lot to think about. And I, I feel like it's been like a kind of uh, drinking from the fire hose exper <laughs> uh, exper uh, experience. So I'm, I'm going to try to like uh, uh, end it here and, uh, Maybe we could all try to sleep on it and wrap our heads around it. I'd love to get some feedback from my listeners on uh, what they think of quantum computing after this discussion. Um, so, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, do you have any last thoughts and, and anything you want to promote? Uh, where can people find out more about you on social media or, or whatever or, uh, or, or more about what we've spoken about today, although I have some very good links. on. Sure, here. yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Max, for having me. It was definitely fun to talk about this. I hope it was... I hope I didn't use too much jargon. Um, 
it's, it's unavoidable for yeah, this topic. Uh, I, I would recommend if, if you want to learn about this, just go on IBM Quantum, IBM's Quantum website. Um, they have like a series of tutorials for different levels of technical background that can be fun to play around with if you're interested in this. Um, uh, as far as social media, I am not particularly active on social media. At least, Good for you. At least, under no, my, I'm at, at least not under my real name. I, uh, and uh, the stuff I'm working on right now, um, I'd have to be a bit secretive about, but... Um, uh, if, if things go well, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll hear about it in the, in the future. It's, it's okay. tangentially related to quantum computing, uh, but not exactly that. Okay. So if anyone has a question for you, they can, they can go through me. Yeah. Um, all right. Sounds good. All right, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Max. All right. I feel like not only did I get the theoretical rundown today, uh, but for the first time, it feels more real as I have links to like actual software and hardware where I could get started. So like, um, you know, before it was just kind of on a whiteboard or, or, or on a blackboard, blackboard or whiteboard, what's the difference? But now I feel like I actually can like, you know, write, write, uh, maybe, maybe it would take some learning, but I feel like I could actually figure out how to go in and, and deploy some of this stuff uh, if, if I wanted to. So that feels more real. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 and, and all these links are going to be on the show notes page at localmaxradio.com slash 276. And th those are links to the actual software and, and hardware to get started. Okay. Uh, I, and of course, I just remind you all to join our locals to talk more about quantum computing, uh, maximum.locals.com. Hope to hear from you there soon. Uh, I hope to get an interview in with Aaron this week. We'll see if we can do that. And we have episodes coming up on open source software as well. And 276, I believe it'll be 276, is going to be a very special episode that might throw you for a loop. So look forward to that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the local maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.